0: Matthew 20, beginning at verse 20. Jesus just predicted his death. He said he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be um, be crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So far from Matthew, and then if you would turn with me to Philippians way toward the back of the New Testament, letter of Paul to the Philippians, right after Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 2, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you remember the most recent amber alert that flooded the airways, airwaves and our phones? It was only a couple of weeks ago on Valentine's Day as there was a frantic search for an 11-year-old girl allegedly abducted by her father on her birthday. It turned out it was no abduction. Instead, Rhea Rhea Reichmer was found dead inside a Brampton home, and her father, Ropesh Reichmer, was taken into custody near Aurelia in connection with the death of his daughter. Remember that story? There was even more grief involved for the family since Ropesh also ended up dying from a self-inflicted Gunshot wound. What a terrible, terrible story. It's a story that brought the word femicide into the spotlight. A word that I've never really given much thought to before. But femicide is generally defined as the killing of one or more females, primarily by males, because they're female. It represents the extreme end of violence and discrimination against women and girls. Think of the shootings back in the École Polytechnique in Montreal by Marc Lapine in 1989. That outdates some of you, but some of you remember that story very well. Fourteen women shot and killed simply because they were women. And the disgusting thing is that this story about the death of Rhea is a story that's all too familiar in our country because it's estimated that one woman or girl is killed. I can't believe this, but it's true. One or or girl is killed every other day. Every other day, on average, somewhere in our country. And about once a week, once a week, really once a week, A woman is killed by her male partner in Canada. In 2015, close to half, 48% of all solved homicides involved a female victim, and the homicide was committed by a spouse or other intimate partner. Of all reported violent crimes in 2016, more than one quarter resulted from family violence and 67% of family violence victims were women and girls. Later figures tell us that 79% of police reported intimate partner violence is against women. Women are victims of intimate partner homicide at a rate four times greater than men. figures. Figures that ought to make us silent. Not for a moment, but for a long period of time. And then it ought to make us jump to our feet and shout, stop already. Stop. And it makes me ask the question, what's going on with us men that this is a reality in our land. And we know from studies a reality among churchgoers, too. Last Sunday, Pope Francis closed the four-day summit on clerical sexual abuse, declaring an all-out battle against abusers within the church whom the pontiff called tools of Satan. The unprecedented summit held in the Vatican was attended by 190 bishops from all over the world with testimonies delivered by abuse survivors. It's a summit long, long, long overdue. Because reports about abuse in the Roman Catholic Church have been in the headlines for many years now. For example, in August 2018, not that long ago, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court Made public one of the broadest ever investigations into Catholic clerical sexual abuse of minors in the United States. The document, a 1,400 page grand jury report, was the result of an 18 month parole by Pennsylvania State and named at least 300 priests accused of child sex abuse by more than 1,000 victims throughout the state. Pennsylvania alone. Unless we get all smug about all this kind of stuff, over the past few weeks, the findings of a joint investigation by two Texas papers, the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News, revealed that over 200 Southern Baptist pastors, youth pastors, and deacons were convicted or took plea deals for sex crimes over the past 20 years, leaving behind over 700 survivors. And the really angering thing about it is that some of them are back in the pulpit. Mars Hill, Willow Creek, Harvest Chapel, all mega churches in which their celebrity pastors fell from grace because of various forms of abuse. And the Christian Reformed Church is not exempt. The Office of Safe Church has reported an increase in the number of calls and stories about those who have abused their office and taken advantage of others. Our own local classes, Classes Huron, has dealt with the deposition of two ordained commissioned pastors in the last year. And for those who are victims of abuse, the pain is deep, and it affects every aspect of their life. Marion Lovelace, a victim of clergy abuse, boldly writes as part of her poem entitled "Stolen, Stolen, Not Lost, she wrote, You stole my unquestioned belief in my heavenly Father's love. You stole the preciousness of solitude in God's presence. You stole the joy of coming together to share Eucharist. You stole my reverence for the deep meaning of a church family. You stole my ability to be quiet and hear God's voice. You stole my belief in the phrase, God answers prayers. You stole the joy I felt in calling myself Christian. That's only part of her entire poem. that talks about what was stolen but not lost. And the stories continue. You know that as well as I do. A joint investigation by CBC News and CBC Sports revealed that at least 222 coaches who were involved in amateur sports in Canada have been convicted of sexual offenses in the past 20 years involving more than 600 victims under the age of 18. And the cases of another 34 accused coaches are currently currently before the courts. It's hit the sports world big time. And many people sitting in this room are involved in organized sports. Be careful. Make sure that you stay safe. People like Sheldon Kennedy and Theo Fleury have written about the phenomenal impact of abuse in their lives. At the January 2019 lecture series at Calvin College, Rachel Hollander was a guest speaker. Some of you perhaps know her name. She's a Christian, an advocate, and an educator who became known internationally as the first woman to file a police report and speak publicly against Larry Nasser, USA Gymnastics National Team Doctor and an osteopathic physician at Michigan State University. He was one of the most prolific sexual abusers in recorded history. As a result of Rachel's activism, Over 250 women came forward as survivors of Nasser's abuse, leading to his life imprisonment. And if you read her impact statement, it is incredible. It is gracious. It is just. It is righteous. It is angry. And through it, the gospel comes. Rachel and Hollander, look it up. And then I haven't even mentioned the abuse of power on the part of politicians and governments. In our own country, the kerfuffle around the SNC-Lavalin affair strikes many as an incredible abuse of power. In recent times, we've been aware of some of the uh, struggles and unrest in Haiti brought on, it seems, by the abuse of power on the part of the government running away with millions of dollars, as they have tended to do over all the years, leaving the public destitute. Story after story after story after story, and we don't even have to go way back. These are breaking even now as I'm talking. These are stories that ought to make us silent, that ought to make us sit in unbelief that this kind of stuff is happening. And then these are stories that should make us jump up and down and yell, stop it! Stop already. Certainly, these are stories that ought to make the church jump up and yell, Stop, because such is not the way of the kingdom of heaven. As an aside, the fact that we're hearing about more and more cases of abuse, that more and more victims are coming forward. While terrible and sickening and sometimes making us want to turn off the radio or the TV or throw the paper aside, it's really not a bad thing, you know? Actually, it's a good thing. It's become, it's because it's obviously victims have had enough and they're finally feeling safe and empowered to talk about what happened to them, to talk about their pain and their hurt and they're being listened to and they're being believed. And it's good that they come forward. Things that remain hidden and not talked about have their way of growing deeper and darker. Out in the open, at least, there can be a breaking of a pattern. There can be relief and safety and justice and health and perhaps restoration. Now, all of the abuse Examples cited, while perhaps many of them are referred to as sexual abuse or whatever, could actually be spoken of as an abuse of power. In each situation, power was used by someone in a position of trust or a position of greater authority or power to gain an unfair advantage for personal gain. Now, while power in and of itself is harmless, and it's just there, it's how one uses power that makes the difference. As Dr. Danjama Gibson, pastoral care professor at Calvin Seminary wrote, it is the use of power that will prove to be either life-giving, life-limiting, or death-dealing. The biblical witness is clear in its intention of power. It should be used in service to the other, not for selfish ambition or vain conceit. Power is most safely employed when in humility we value others above ourselves. The love of power destroys people and communities Whereas the power of love builds and restores people and communities. Unquote. Indeed, in the examples given, such as domestic abuse and clergy abuse, and abuse on the part of coaches or doctors, power was used selfishly and not for life giving purpose. Actually, the love of power has led to many a devastated and harmed victim. Jesus, being very much aware of the fallen fallen state of the world, that's why he came, wanted the disciples and consequently us to understand the appropriate use of power in the kingdom. And in doing so, Jesus reminded us that the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. While power may be something sought after by those in this world, and why power may cause people to be blind to the pain it causes others because they're so caught up in their own selfish need fulfillment, it's not the way of the kingdom. I know that the church throughout the centuries has not done a very good job of truly understanding an appropriate use or a pr- appropriate view of the use of power, and therefore the endless abuses and mistreatments of those who are powerless. And that is something that the church will continue to be held accountable for and something that the church will continue to have to own. We've blown it over the years with power. And for those who have been hurt by the, uh, by, by the abuse of power in this congregation or in the Christian Reformed Church, I am truly Sorry. And if you have been hurt by the abuse of power in this congregation or elsewhere, let me encourage you to come forward and tell your story. It's tough. I know. It's something that makes you vulnerable, but it's because the church has hurt people over the centuries and because victims are asking to be heard and asking for judges, judgment or justice. And it's because of the reality of abuse in the church that the Christian Reformed Church established the Safe Church Ministry, a ministry that yells, Stop! to those who perpetrate abuse. And it's the same ministry, at the same time it's a ministry, that encourages people to tell their story in a safe place. And so if you have been hurt, find someone who is safe that you can talk to and tell your story. We can't let these things just kind of sit and fester. And it's vital that in a world filled with abuses of power, in a world filled with stories of abuse and victims of abuse and male perpetrators, that we be reminded again and again of how Jesus used power and about Jesus taught about the proper use of power. And Jesus had an opportunity to teach all about power and its appropriate use on a day when he had just spoken about how he was going to be betrayed and handed over to the authorities, be condemned and crucified. He was going to suffer the abuse, the ultimate abuse of power itself, being crucified as a totally innocent person. Well, after those statements told to people who were influenced by the culture of their day, a culture that gloried in power, the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two sons, asking that they be given places of prominence in Jesus' kingdom. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left in your kingdom. Verse 21. Well, the request was not solely from the mother, but really from the two disciples. Mom was their mouthpiece. To sit at the right and the left-hand side of a king or other ruler in those days meant that they would hold the second most powerful positions in the kingdom, much like Joseph held in Egypt under Pharaoh. Quite the request. How Jesus must have suffered. Despite his walking with them and despite all that they had experienced with Jesus, his own disciples had not understood how much Jesus had been humbled by becoming like us. And apparently they had somehow been blind to his use of power. They certainly misunderstood his very reason for coming. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was heading off to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. He would drive out the Romans, liberate the land, wield power over the Romans and over Israel's enemies. Truly, a time of revenge was finally coming, and Jesus was the one to carry it out with the help of the disciples, of course, at the right and at the left hand. They were more than happy to do that. James and John not only brought all this anticipated misuse of power to expression, that is, they were the ones who verbalized it. But the other disciples who didn't ask were no better either, for we read that the rest of the disciples, upon hearing what had taken place, upon hearing their request, were filled with indignation. And this reaction on the disciples' part is such that one surmises that they actually may have wanted these positions of of importance for themselves. Now James and John beat them to the punch. Too bad. As far as the disciples were concerned, before Jesus was to take back the land, they wanted to make sure they would be recognized in the new kingdom, and so they vied for prominent positions. Power was something they wanted, something they could figure figure they could use for their own purposes out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But then Jesus very quickly deflated the egos of all involved and spoke a paradox. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Whereas the kingdoms of the world are, exerc- are characterized by lordship, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, the kingdom of heaven is characterized by service. Be servants, Jesus said. That's how one ought to live in the kingdom. Interesting. That which we think is normal and natural in the eyes of the sovereign God is not normal or natural at all. The distinctive characteristics of the kingdom is using one's power to serve, to be great, Get on your knees to be first, be a slave. It would seem from this portion of Scripture that the basic meaning of the words servant and slave are synonymous, even though the emphasis of each word is perhaps somewhat different. The Greek word used for servant is the word diakonos, from which you probably recognize we get the word deacon. And in the deacon, the word and deed ministry come together because not only do the deacons serve people in terms of their physical needs, but they're also called to speak words of Christian encouragement. To serve means to be involved in selfless, loving actions. Power is most safely employed when we, in humility, value others above ourselves. The love of power destroys people and communities, whereas the power of love builds and restores people and communities. Serving basically means to fulfill the law of love, love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. Truly serving is to place others before ourselves or to do whatever we can to advance our neighbor's good name. And it means to work in such a way that when they see us and when they see our service, they come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ through us. And all of that is to be done in a spirit of humility and selflessness so that one day when we stand before the Lord, he will say, Come, you who were blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And upon hearing all of that, we might say, huh? When did we do that? Because as servants, it just becomes a way of life. So ordinary. To be great in the kingdom is to be a servant, living a life of selfless devotion to the Lord and to one's fellow being. Being a servant is not about me, it's not about myself. It's not about I. It's about others. To be first in the kingdom, says Jesus, is to be a slave, totally subject, totally surrendered to the master, To our Lord. Oh, use me, Lord, use even me just as you will and when and where we sing. Well, to be a slave is then to do whatever the Lord has prepared for us to do or to go wherever the Lord decides to send us. A slave is one who is usually considered at the bottom of society's ladder, he's owned by the master and has absolutely no rights. And now along comes Jesus, along comes the kingdom of heaven and turns that ladder upside down and states that those who have fully subjected their lives to him are first in the kingdom. And those who are indeed carrying out the commands of the Lord, those who are his true servants, are the greatest in the kingdom. To be great in the kingdom is not to lord it over others, not to have incredible power, but it is to love. A new commandment I give you, love one another. By this, you will, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And what's love all about? First Corinthians 13, go there. We as believers are called to be servants and slaves just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to this earth to have servants, but to be a servant. And by this statement again, the disciples and the Jews' thinking were set on end. The Son of Man, the Messiah, was not going to be a great and earthly ruler who would sit on a throne in Jerusalem and make Rome the present enemy, his slaves and his servants. Instead, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to serve his people by dying for them. He paid the ultimate price for our sins by giving up his own life, selfishly, selflessly, sorry, He became the least for us. He was a slave in that he freely obeyed the will of his Father perfectly. And he gave the supreme sacrifice, setting us free, ransoming us. And because of his great sacrifice and because of his obedience as a slave, he who became a curse for us, he who hung between heaven and earth, not wanted by either, he who died the lowest of society, became the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He ascended into heaven, sits upon the throne, and rules therein majesty and splendor. And someday every knee will bow and declare him Lord. Referring to Philippians 2, Dr. Gibson said in this excerpt from Philippians, Paul refers to how Jesus utilizes power. This scriptural passage reveals the power of Jesus and his equality with God. Through the lens of the Trinity, Jesus is God. Nevertheless, he didn't use his power to gain an unfair advantage in his relationship with humanity. The people he was sent to love and to redeem. Instead, he became like them in order to serve them. In a very profound way, Jesus demonstrated his use of power, a la love, by becoming human like us. This is an example of love and power, but not love of power, unquote. When we hear the stories of abuses of power, when we hear the stories of one gender taking it out on another, when we hear stories of the abuse of power in the church or in sports or in the doctor's office or wherever it takes place, we need to yell, Stop! We need to report. We need to talk about it. And beyond that, we need to learn and teach each new generation about the life-giving use of power as demonstrated by the Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. If you want to be someone, become selfless, become a servant, become a slave, like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord of all, having heard your word and having been reminded of the power of love, we offer ourselves to you. We offer our hands, use our healing touch to comfort sisters and brothers and children who are afraid. We offer our eyes and ears, may we see and hear the signs and stories of violence and death. So, all may have someone with them in their pain and confusion. We offer our hearts and our tears as they hurt, as their hurt and sorrow echo within us. May we help to bring peace and healing. We offer our anger to you, O Lord, make it a passion for justice. And we offer all our skills. Use our skills to end violence against all people vulnerable or not. We offer our faith, our hope, and our love. And may our encounters with violence bring us closer to you and to each other. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, who knows the pain of violence and death. Amen.